Hey, I'm Joseph. <laughs> hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. All right. Well, I appreciate you being here uh, with us, taking the time to talk with us, uh, Norman. And uh, we're going to start the podcast the way we start every podcast. um, And that's just simply running this question by you. Um, So when you find yourself in an awkward social setting or small talk, uh, the inevitable question that always comes up is just simply, what do you do? Uh, what's What's your response to that? Okay, what do I do? Mostly what I will tell people is I'm a teacher at Duke University and that I, you know, I'm interested in all sorts of questions relating to how we think about food systems, how we think about our place in the world. Uh, and mostly what I'm wanting to do is engage students, but also community folks around, you know, I think what are fundamental questions about what it means to be a human being and how do we live well in the places that we find ourselves and, you know, sometimes that can be a real, you know, stopper in the conversation because, <laughs> you know, professors aren't always held in the highest esteem. And and I get some of that because I did not grow up in a culture where academics was something that a lot of people aspire to do. So I'm fairly comfortable talking with people who, who don't share an academic context as something that they value. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, disconnect that people would assume to be there between Academia oh, sure. in the real world. It's not world. just that the that faculty members at universities can be disconnected, but they can also be the kind of folk who, who don't really understand uh, where a lot of people are living and the kinds of points of view that they might uh, hold. And so, you know, one of the things that's important to me is to not lose touch with people who maybe don't share uh, an academic world as their primary world. Without uh, obviously naming names, is that something though that you find true? I mean, even uh, amongst, I don't even want, maybe not say your colleagues, but I mean, is that a uh, unjustified uh, stereotype or do you find it to be true? Well, I mean, it's hard to speak real generally here because there will always be places, universities or colleges that do a better or worse job at this. But I think one of the things that happens in academic life is that The culture for success is one that requires you to, say, specialize or requires you to really turn your attention to problems that have been defined by fellow academicians. And, you know, I think that that can be a problem because academic discourses are often quite abstract or they can be filled with all sorts of jargon. And sometimes they're incredibly self-referential, right? They're people (laughs) talking about the same texts. And I think what would be really helpful is for for university folks to get out in the communities where they are talking about the issues that, you know, at least seem on the surface to be your focus of concern. So, for instance, in the work that I do where I'm interested in sustainable ag and also food systems, it's really important to be talking to farmers. It's important to be talking to people who are in different food sectors to see how they're experiencing the questions and the problems that as an academician, I might be wanting to address. And I think what's really exciting about uh, some academic areas of inquiry is that people are thinking about the the questions uh, precisely by engaging the people who are most on the ground with that. And so you realize then that what's important for the work is that you not uh, sort of focus about the issue through your academic specialization but that you broaden the conversation, that you engage more and different kinds of people than the ones that would have traditionally been consulted. And I think that's all really good. And and I think what that does is it makes sure that the, the kinds of academic speech that often happen are a bit chastened by more on-the-ground realities where people are saying what you're, de- what you're describing isn't true to our experience and you're speaking in a way that most of us don't understand. Needlessly complicating things. Uh, well, I mean, things can be very complicated for sure, and, and there are ways to talk about it which don't further complicate sure. or unnecessarily complicate what's, what's really in play. So you mentioned that, uh, that sort of 
you, your upbringing, you there was a, a disconnect between academics and real life folks. Talk talk more about the way that you were raised and where you were raised. Sure. Yeah, I, I grew up in southern Alberta, western Canada, and I was raised by farming community of people. We were farmers ourselves. And uh, most of the people that I would have associated with and most of the people that I you know, highly respected were not people who spent a lot of time in books. They were not people who had much education themselves, often didn't get past uh, what, we, what we would call primary education levels. Uh, college was not on the radar for many of the people that I knew. And so um, I thought that I was myself going to join that, that crowd of people. I mean, obviously, I went through uh, high school, but what I wanted to do was be a farmer. And, and so I thought that, you know, what you do is you learn the skills that are required to be a good farmer. And, you know, those are enormous uh, in their variety and in the difficulty that is required of you to learn. Uh, so that, that was the context that I grew up in. And as I was coming into adulthood in the in the 1980s, it was becoming pretty clear that agriculture was not going to be a viable path because it was this era where if you want to farm, you have to become a big farmer, and that means assume a tremendous amount of financial debt. And I did not see that as a, as a viable way moving forward. It's also a very, very stressful way to try to, to live. And so I then went to university thinking that, you know, I would maybe become a school teacher in the area and have a hobby farm on the side or something like that. Uh, but when I went to university, uh, to my surprise, discovered that I really loved uh, the work of what professors was doing. And, and I thought that what, what they did was in some ways uh, a kind of luxury and and so it, it took a fair amount of adjustment to me because the way I measured work in that time period was, you know, what did you actually accomplish on the ground? And that meant, did you feed animals? Did you raise a crop or did you build something? Because I also worked construction and bricklaying. And so that was the measure of work. And so it took a fair amount of time for me to realize that you could actually be paid to read and write and that the work could be understood to be something that really matters. Uh, but it, it took a while because that's, that's not the context that I grew up in. What, what kind of stuff did, did your family farm? Well, we were a, a fairly typical family farm. We raised uh, alfalfa and various grains, barley, oats, uh, wheat. We had a small cattle operation where we fed about 2,000 head of cattle a year. You know, we had chickens and pigs and rabbits and, and the, the general slew of things that, that family farms had at that time. And if we were going to continue farming, uh, what bankers were telling us is that uh, we would have to dramatically increase the size of our cattle operation to more like ten or 20,000 head of cattle. Wow. And that was going to be enormously stressful because to do that, you have to have a pretty sizable land base not just to, to raise the food that you feed your cattle, but also you needed a place to put your manure. And uh, land prices were getting to be fairly expensive. It was very hard to get land that was contiguous with your own land. And so it meant, it meant a pretty stressful life, uh, acquiring land, paying for the land, managing the land, and also keeping the cattle operation going. Was it, um, when at that point when you were farming, was like, was it more thought of as a vocation or like, what, did you have the mentality of kind of some of your, your work that you do now in regards yeah. to, you know, sustainability and, and, and all of those sorts of things? Or was it, was it a different mentality in a different time? Well, it's interesting you'd ask that because I think I was also, you know, coming into adulthood at a time when agriculture was changing fairly dramatically. So, um, on our own farm, for instance, there was a clear tension between wanting to farm in ways that my grandfather emulated, which were really the traditions of animal husbandry. And, you know, many of the farmers of, of his generation and my, my parents' generation, they thought of farming as, as a, a, a high calling. And so the care of animals and the care of your fields was, was of supreme importance because the idea for many of the farmers at that time was that the farm would be passed on to the next generation 
and that the most important thing was to to see to it that your farm was in better condition when you passed it on than when you yourself either acquired it or received it. Mm. And so farming clearly was something that was uh, viewed with a, a great deal of of personal interest and not simply business interest. And I think what was happening uh, as I was coming into adulthood was that more and more farms were becoming uh, business operations, and there was tremendous pressure on farmers. And this was pressure that took many, many forms. You know, certainly at the level of bankers, but also the major farm input providers, from machinery to seed companies to the um, the inputs that were things like uh, herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers, and things of that sort. They were very much pushing in the direction of making farming a business, and the bottom line was always the primary desideratum, and that meant, too, that you had to treat your animals differently. The way you treated your fields uh, changed as a result because as crop prices and you know beef prices took you know major hits, the only way farmers could make a living was through maximizing yield because the margins of profit – were so small that if you were going to make a living, you really had to uh, grow as much as you possibly could or produce as much as you possibly could. And so that that gave a very different uh, sort of slant to the way farming was conceived. And, and that's really been the story, not just in Southern Alberta, but it's been the story across industrial ag in the last several decades. It's not a vocation. It's a business interest, and it's reflected now in the fact that so many farms uh, are run by people who don't live on them. Right. Yeah. So how did you end up at Duke then? And and then uh, another particular question and uh, aspect to that question would be the message that you brought initially. Was it uh, – were you breaking new grounds as, when you uh, arrived at Duke? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the path here is a pretty long and unexpected one. I certainly could not have imagined that I would end up at a place, but uh, like like Duke, for instance. But I think what was of of real importance to me was that um, I developed a friendship with Wendell Berry, who then gave me a really radical way of thinking about work that and, and the kind of philosophical theological work I had been doing. Which, which was utterly unexpected and also at the same time incredibly invigorating. So, you know, I went to, to do graduate training and studied theology and ended up studying philosophy. And in both of those places, what I became really interested in was 19th and 20th century French and German thought. And I'll tell you that farming didn't show up anywhere, either in the <laughs> philosophical or theological registers. And so when I ended up moving to Kentucky to teach for a number of years, I, I met Wendell Berry, and he helped me understand that agrarianism is not simply a tradition that is for farmers, but it's also a strong cultural tradition that reaches back to the ancient Greeks and the Hebrew prophets, and then all the way through literatures, both Western and Eastern. And so he really gave me an education around why agrarian writers are to be taken seriously, not just by farmers, but by anybody who has an interest about the large questions of our time. And so I started to write in areas in religion and in philosophy in which I brought this agrarian point of view. And it was wonderful because it allowed me to integrate some of the very formative influences in my own life with now these more academic influences that I had developed since going to graduate school. And so, you know, I think what I was doing when I first came here to Duke was pretty unusual because, you know, farmers don't figure at places like Duke. They're just not in the faculty and their writing for the most part is not taken with a great deal of seriousness. But what I wanted to argue is that agriculture has been one of humanity's most pervasive, not always helpful forms of life, and that agriculture is the way through which we come to do some of the most basic things that we have to do as human beings, one of them being that we eat, but others also include how we prepare or secure, rather, our, our own livelihoods with energy and food and fiber and, and things of that sort. So I was starting to make connections around a food farming faith philosophy that I think were in some ways a bit novel and I think would have been perceived by a number of people to be fairly odd. 
But it's been gratifying to see that more and more people are seeing that these connections are not odd at all because uh, agriculture brings us back to ways of being in the world and being with each other that are ancient and in some respects, I, I would say, also indispensable. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, how you how you met Wendell, how he, uh, you know, became such an influence on you? I, I imagine one hour-long uh, porch conversation with him is the equivalent of a PhD. And I just, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know you feel very grateful for having... Um, met him and, and being in a right. place where he could become an influence of yours. Um, I was wondering if you could just speak more to the particularities of that relationship. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I started teaching philosophy in, in Canada already for a couple of years, and I was asked if I would teach a course on environmental ethics, which I knew really nothing about. But you don't say no to your first uh, employer about <laughs> teaching something. And so I, I became a very uh, diligent student of environmental ethics as it was being done in the 1990s, early 1990s. And it was pretty unsatisfying uh, what was going on at that point. And so when I came to Kentucky and was starting to teach, you know, people already understood that environmental philosophy was something that I had an interest in. And I asked some of my new friends – who's a Kentucky writer that I should read because of, you know, I want to learn something about the state that I've moved to, but also just someone who you think is, is worthwhile. And they immediately said, well, Wendell Berry. And I had no idea who Wendell Berry was. I'd not heard of his name before. I did not know that he was an agrarian and that he was a writer of real philosophical depth. So I, I picked up a few of his books and started reading them and was immediately taken by them because I saw that he was addressing questions that I had real interest in, but was doing it in a way that was so foreign to the sort of academic uh, training that I had received, yet also deeply resonant with my own experience. And you know, his book, The Unsettling of America, which draws the contrast between animal husbandry and industrial agriculture, really spoke to my own uh, upbringing. And so I, I thought, I really need to get to know this guy. He only lives an hour away. And so I asked friends, well, how, how is that happening? How Can you actually just write him and meet him? And they said, well, you need to know he's not real fond of academicians, <laughs> but you know he, he might meet with you if you wrote him. And so I did and tried to play up as much as I could uh, my agricultural upbringing and interests. And, and we met um, on a Sunday afternoon and uh, had just the most wonderful time. And, you know, we hit it off. And, and Wendell's just a very generous human being. And uh, he extended that generosity to me, and I'm forever grateful for that. And we discovered that there were lots of ways that we could actually work together on some things that, that were of mutual concern. So in Kentucky, uh, the Sierra Club was unusual because it was very interested in agriculture because Traditionally, environmental groups and farmers have not gotten along very well, and and also working with the Community Farm Alliance, which is another organization in central Kentucky, which was working to try to develop ways that uh, farmers could make stronger connections with the consumers who, who bought their food, and how these new kinds of thinking about uh, agricultural economies could be a benefit to eaters, but also a benefit to farmers. And and so that began a, a friendship and a collaboration around projects that lasted, uh, you know, probably a dozen years. And it was, I think, in my view now, the most important thing that happened while I was uh, te teaching in, in Kentucky is that I be, became able, and I had, because teaching at a liberal arts college, the freedom to take the time to understand what's the agrarian difference, why does it matter, and uh, started writing about these things, started teaching about these things, and uh, it was it was a tremendous gift. And you know we've continued to be in touch. I mean it's difficult, more difficult now, given that we are as far apart as we are. But you know from time to time we still find opportunity to do something together, and that's really been wonderful. That's fantastic. That one of the things that. I mean, there's so many things that make uh, Wendell's voice and message so unique and powerful, but I think that one of the things that make it the most unique is his um, his 
his tie to or attachment to a particular place. Um, right. And I was interested to get your thoughts on this because like as the, whatever you want to call it, the environmental movement, the green movement or, or whatever, as it expands and as it kind of gets passed down then to the next generation and as they take the lead on a lot of things, um, there seems to be more and more of a detachment from particular places. And so the message becomes more uh, just conversations in the political uh, atmosphere and no one's actually got hands in soil, um, whereas Wendell was able to talk to particular rivers, particular trees, particular uh, fields and things like that. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that as far as uh, an ever-increasing detachment from place, even as it pertains to a message that speaks yeah. to environmental concerns. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right that the, one of the things that Wendell did that was so very, very important is that he advocated for our thinking being rooted in a place, in a community, but also his advocacy for the importance of local economies and becoming the champions of local economies. And you know there are there are multiple levels on which this this kind of focus operates i mean just for a start right think about education right many in many instances education is done by professors who are themselves very rootless they don't have a deep love for any particular place because insofar as they are careerists they know they're only going to be in a place for a short while before they move on to somewhere else and they tend to want to be cosmopolitan, and you know, I'm I'm not opposed to cosmopolitanism, but sure. usually what what goes along with cosmopolitanism is a kind of uh, derision or even despising of small places as not being of importance because they're not the centers of power and so forth. And I think what what happens when you take the arguments of Wendell seriously, you begin to realize that the work that matters in in all sorts of ways is how we're going to make sure that any particular place that we are in receives the kind of attention and then hopefully also the kind of affection in which we can rebuild or insofar as places are damaged, heal the places that have either been neglected or have been degraded or mined. And that requires a different sort of way of thinking about what an education ought to be about. Because sometimes we think about the work of education in universal terms or in highly abstract terms. And the reality, of course, is that insofar as we acknowledge our own embodiment, our embodiment always ties us to places through our economies. And so what becomes important then is to think, how do we develop economies that can draw people into the places that are actually sustaining them? And what we discover if we pay attention, say, to food or energy is we have no connection to the sources where, uh, or the places rather, where our food is being produced or where our energy is being produced. And it's in that big gap between what feeds us, what provides energy for us, and where we in fact live. In that gap, there's a kind of anonymity. There's also a kind of ignorance and blindness. And so we do a lot of damage through the economies that we live through because we're not seeing the connections between our consumer choices and what's making those choices viable. And so to advocate then for drawing attention to the sources of our lives, what we find is a better chance, not a guarantee, but at least a better chance that we will see how what we are choosing is either destructive or actually beneficial. And I think local economies help us do that better. Yeah, absolutely. If it's not local, you can be doing a whole lot of damage through your consumer right. choices that you have no idea is occurring. Um, so, like, when, you know, you use the word agrarian um, quite a bit, and I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they just think agriculture maybe. Um, but, right. but, like, as you spoke to a Wendell and yourselves, more holistic understanding of that, and, and maybe even in terms of education, like, what would, what's, what's your definition of, uh, like, maybe either agrarianism or, and then how that would play out in community or um, even in the educational. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I think the thing to say is that agrarianism is not uh, anything like a, a movement, but it's more a set of responsibilities and priorities and affections that, that a person might have. So to be an agrarian, you don't have to be a farmer. 
Right? And I think that's the the first thing to say because the fact is a lot of farmers are not agrarians because right. as I define the term, an agrarian is someone who understands that the health of humanity cannot endure apart from seeking the health of the land that also nurtures you. And and by land, I don't just mean soil. I mean all sorts of kinds of places, whether they be forests or fields or watersheds or what have you, and oceans would fall within this too. These are the sources of our sustenance. And if the sources of our sustenance are not being cared for, are not being um, protected, uh, then we're not going to be able to live very long in, in places that we find ourselves. And so agrarians seek the health of land and people together. And and that's why you know a farmer is not by definition an agrarian because we know that there are plenty of farming practices that are at the expense of the land, right? And that's been part of the problem, right? Agriculture has a very long, diverse, and varied history. And by the definition I've just given, some of those uh, variations of agriculture, historically speaking, have not been very agrarian. And I think another thing that's very important to say is that agrarians are not simply interested in turning back the clock. Right? They're not advocating that everybody go back to the land or that everybody be a farmer. Right? That's just not workable in our context. It has not been workable in many times in our history because to be a farmer requires a very complex intelligence uh, despite the caricature, and it requires a, a really diverse skill set. It requires particular kinds of dispositions that a lot of people don't have. And so my position as an agrarian is not to say everybody should be a farmer. But what I would argue is that people should have agrarian sympathies and priorities in mind when, as consumers, they buy the food that they do, consume the energy they do. That as agrarians, they should be thinking about the politicians that they're going to elect. Do they have the health of land and people together? If they don't, they shouldn't be elected. Right, So agrarianism is as much something that draws from the past as it is something that looks to a future that has never yet been fully realized because so many of the economies that we inhabit and have been the dominant economies today are ones that exploit the land, mine the land, and so they are forms of banditry, as Thoreau once said. And so we have to think about um, agrarianism as a, a goal that we are still working toward uh, as we try to develop the kinds of institutions, the kinds of economic priorities that will seek the health of land and people together. So so to give you some context, Steve is, uh, is somebody who uh, has lives this whole message out in a, in a really profound way with, you know, he's got livestock on his on his personal family farm and pigs and mm-hmm. goats and all that sort of thing i'm living in a high-rise apartment in the middle of charlotte and mm-hmm. am you know am the caricature almost the other way really trying to live into this but not you know not with any earnest honestly and so to take so speak to someone like me and who i represent that's you know an urbanite and all that kind of thing how yeah. how do we how do we take something that feels too lofty, too theoretical, whatever. How do I care about this place that I'm in? You know, cause I hear you talking about, uh, your family farm in Canada. I hear, you know, Wendell and his farm in Kentucky or, you know, right. somebody that was really influential to me was Eugene Peterson and him talking about Flathead Lake sure. in Montana or his father's butcher yeah. shop. How, how do, how do we take cities and, and, live out this message in a way that feels faithful. Yeah. Well, I think you start with something that everybody participates in and that's eating. And and one of the ways that I say we should start about this is to try to remove the veil of ignorance that prevents us as urbanites from knowing much about our food, right? It's it's in a way shocking that it took us it took a journalist like Michael Pollan to, you know, instigate a, a pretty widespread national conversation about where food comes from. That's an utter, utterly unusual situation in the history of humanity because for, for millennia, people had a pretty good idea of where their food came from and under what conditions it was produced. But you know, contemporary urbanism has made it so that many, many people had no idea where their food comes from and they still don't have an idea. 
And so an education around the sources of our eating would be a really good place for urbanites to start, right? To educate themselves. And and I don't mean just educate themselves through, you know, reading a book as important as that is, but also trying to get out of the city or getting into the city where urban ag is happening, you know, participating in community gardens or urban agriculture that we see happening in, in a variety of cities now. And it's ex- extremely exciting, actually. Because the point is, again, not to tell everybody they have to be farmers and that if they're not a farmer, they're not living an authentic life. I think that's simply a false thing to assume. But you can, as you become educated about the food you eat, then as a consumer decide to make some choices about where you're going to buy your food, what kind of food you're going to purchase. But you're also then going to become educated so that something like a food system becomes something that you care about. As a citizen, as somebody who votes, right, think here. I mean, I live in the Durham area, and what we've seen in just a 30-year period, even less really, is a real transformation of how food is being imagined, how food is being produced, how food is being uh, distributed, and how it's being served, right? We've got a very active, small-scale, organic, regenerative agriculture scene around here. We've got lots of smaller farmers who are producing food and not just commodities. We've got restaurateurs who are wanting fresh food from the region. We have co-ops that are selling the food of farmers grown within a 50-mile radius to consumers in the Durham uh, Triangle area. But this is a transformation that happened. It's good for eaters. It's good for farmers. It's good for land. It's good for animals. And these kinds of things are created because You develop the kinds of conversations in a community in which food and the sources of our eating are taken seriously. They're just on the agenda. They're on the minds of a lot of people. And one of the things that I would love to see is that faith communities take a lead role in this. Faith communities often have land. They have every reason in the world to care about food, to care about the health of the eaters and the health of the lands that produce the food. And they can become the kinds of catalysts, you might say, um, that that convene this conversation, that host it, but then also become agents for developing something like a, a local food economy where they happen to be. And, and I think what's important to say is that even rural communities um, that you know we find all across North Carolina – They are in rural places as traditionally defined, but they're not very rural because the people there are are shoppers uh, as much as people living in Charlotte or Raleigh. And so what what we're talking about is is taking an agrarian message even into rural communities because they're not agrarian, Mm. right? They ceased being agrarian decades ago uh, when agriculture took a, a dramatic turn. And as agriculture came to be uh, dictated by financial or business interests and by absentee landowners. Uh, so we have a situation right now where you can be in a small rural community, but nobody's growing food. And in fact, um, your footprint is larger because of the, the amount of transportation you're having to do to get into the places that you're consuming. Um, it, right. I, I just think that's a tremendous point that there's a big difference between, uh, you know, the agrarianism and, and just simply rural living. It's, it's right. very different. Um, yeah. So in your, as you were talking about food and as being a way to, to enter into the conversation in a real tangible way, um, in your book, food and faith. You spoke a lot about the spiritual nature of eating. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe uh, from the angle of of your motivation into this? Because um, I think for maybe a lot of people, the, the motivation for whether it's sustainable agriculture or, or any part of the environmental movement, it can just be yeah. simply surviving like i would prefer right. to survive than than have this planet disappear but then there's people like uh charles eisenstein who isn't talking about it from necessarily a christian perspective but he speaks of of basically creation as he doesn't use this word but as covenant member as as motivation right. as like just a member of the family to care for um and and i don't want to speak in generalizations, but but I think that that is a message lacking from the Christian 
tradition currently. So can you speak a little bit uh, to, to any of that um, as far as... Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I think what we have to do is we have to sort of stop and try to assess the significance of some of the most basic things that we do. And if we use eating as, as our point of entry here, um, insofar as you are simply a shopper of food, food approaches you or appears to you as, as simply a commodity. And what you care about is, you know, is it cheap? Is it convenient? Is it tasty? Whatever. And and I think what, what happens when people are reduced to shoppers, they have the most ignorant relationship to food that has ever existed in the history of humanity. Because... If you're involved at all in the growing of food, whether it's plants or animals, you discover that eating, besides being utterly fundamental, right? if you don't eat, you don't live, you also discover that the whole of life, right, any form of life, lives by eating. Now, that, that seems like it's a pretty basic, easy thing until you realize that eating another means killing another. Right. And so death is at the heart of every eating action that we do. Now, when I started reading, you know, some of the folks who were talking about our food system, questions of death, the value of life, you know, these these did not factor in in sort of the heart of the conversation. And so I wanted to write a book in which some of these really deep fundamental existential questions come to the surface. And when you're talking about death and the meaning of life, you invariably go to religious traditions because these are the kinds of traditions that really have ultimate questions on the table. And so you're going past, but not ignoring, simply economic ways of talking about eating or political ways about talking of eating. And, and I thought that was a conversation that was worth having. having. And, and then, of course, what happens when you start to get into this more deep philosophical way of talking about eating, you realize that besides the fact that eating introduces us to death, it also introduces us to our dependence upon others. And insofar as we're in a food system that has been characterized and shaped by all sorts of industrial logics, the only thing you think about with food is the contract relationship. But if you are a member of creation and, and you understand yourself as embedded and tangled within the lives of plants and animals and bacteria and earthworms and butterflies and you just name it, then you discover that maybe the contractual relationship that we have been accustomed to really falls far short of the kind of depth of what's really happening. Right. Because you can't put prices on these things very easily, but you can put responsibilities and so when you move from simply talking about price to something like responsibilities, that takes you into a covenantal way of speaking about the world. And covenants, by their very definition, are very, very tricky because you can't come up with an accounting system that is ever adequate to the set of responsibilities that you have with the relationships you find yourself in. Right? How could I ever put a price tag on what I owe my child or what I owe my spouse yeah. or what I owe my neighbor or things of this sort because uh, the the whole effort falls flat pretty, pretty quickly. But covenant opens up ways of thinking that are not going to just sort of close the deal when the transaction is finished, but are going to open up a life together in ways that I think are are really crucial for us to, to understand at this particular point in our history, but also have, I think, the best shot of helping us develop the kinds of affections where we'll learn to take care of the things that we depend upon. Yeah, that's great. Um, switching gears just a little bit, um, we usually end by just asking a series of, of questions that you know you don't feel that you have to give long answers to or anything like that. But one of them is just uh, simply this. Do you have any uh, specific routines that you implement in your life, like your morning routine, your night routine, that just uh, really helps you stay focused and centered and grounded? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think for me, one of the most important things to do, and it's not very easy given the kind of life I'm in right now with the kinds of responsibilities I have, but finding time to be quiet to slow down and to be attentive and to be perceptive. 
that is absolutely crucial to the kinds of things I'm talking about. Because when I make bad decisions, they're almost invariably a result of not having had time or not taking the time to really attend to what I'm doing. And that, that varies from how I think about you know the, the kinds of practices that orient my life, right? Not stepping back enough to say, is this a practice that I ought to be doing or ought to continue to things like, you know, how do I eat? Um, because if you're going to eat well, you have to be thoughtful about it. And that means taking time, you know, to, to see where am I sourcing, where am I purchasing my food? Uh, am I taking the time to cook a meal with somebody that I love so that we can take the time to get to know each other better or to live more deeply into the lives of each other? So there's no doubt in my mind that the kind of acceleration of life that many of us find ourselves in are really inimical to the kind of things that I'm talking about. And this, the, the time pressure, of course, has been huge in agriculture, too. So I think finding ways to, um, to to slow down, to stop, and of course, you know, this is theologically a, a way of talking about Sabbath and its importance, uh, because Sabbath isn't simply about taking a break. Sabbath is about finding ways to to assess your life and see whether or not it's it's participating in God's own delighting in the world, and and that requires a pretty serious evaluation of how we're spending our time, but also then a commitment to try to live differently. Yeah, your your book, uh, Living the Sabbath, is that's incredible and needs to be read by <laughs> this current culture, for sure. Yeah, um, I need to read it more too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what would be a what would be a guilty pleasure of yours, or maybe something that would surprise people that you you enjoy? I mean, maybe maybe there's a specific show on Netflix that you binge watch that you don't like to to let out there or anything. <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you, so you want me to shame myself? That's here. right. Uh, That's the point of this question. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I think maybe maybe binge watching some British crime drama mm. would be a, a thing that I, I will do from time to time, just because it's it's wonderful to see. You know, I I, I for many years just blasted television because it was so awful. And for the main, I think a lot of network television still is really awful. But it's also been really surprising to see how there's such high-quality programming that's now being done. And so, you know, series like Broadchurch, you know, a, a crime drama miniseries that was done by uh, British uh, TV was, was just fabulous. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of escapism, but it's also, I think, uh, so well done that it raises all kinds of questions about contemporary society. So, you know, it's a guilty pleasure because I really should be spending more time reading serious things, but uh, <laughs> that's something that I love to do. Um, and, you know, just, you know, eating fun foods, right? People think I'm a foodie. I'm not very much of a foodie. I don't care, especially for a lot of fancy food, but I like good food. And so, you know, a thing that I do too much, I think, is probably eat uh, the cakes I love to make. <laughs> Uh, so what um, what what brings you joy? Like, where do you find uh, where do you find your source of joy? Oh, there's lots of them. I mean, there's just beautiful places that I haven't seen before, or beautiful places that I return to. Uh, the joy of having a great meal with with good people that you have wonderful conversation with. Uh, the joy of seeing people discover new things. So being with a class of students where the conversation is is really great and illuminating. Uh, you know, listening to music, playing music. Uh, the sources of joy are endless, and I think what's sad is that we often don't take the time uh, to notice them uh, because we're just too busy doing all the things that we think are so terribly important. And uh, but yeah, finding beauty in the world is is a tremendous joy. Do you teach undergraduates as well, right? Uh, not very often, no, because, I mean, I did for many, many years and, and absolutely loved doing it, but since coming to Duke, most of my teaching has been uh, with graduate students. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll get in with some undergraduates, but that's a, more of a rare occurrence. I, um, I guess even with your graduate students, what I mean, your interactions with them, the conversations that you have with them, I mean, or what hope do you do you gain from that? Like what, uh, you know, these, the, I guess it would be like 
20 some young 20s um yeah what what do they do to you as far as inspiration and giving you hope yeah i mean one of the things that they do which has been a bit surprising to me is how much they challenge me and uh because you know if you're thinking about the 20 somethings in particular right, these are folks who are growing up in a world in which there's a great deal of anxiety because the problems that they are facing in their futures are enormous and you know climate change is one food insecurity is another you know political instability prospects for violence and war i mean there's just the list is endless of the the sorts of worries they have and you know they they are quite prepared to say to my generation you all have screwed up the world in in unbelievable ways and so I need to hear that, which is important, but then also to hear them try to figure out, well, how do we imagine a world differently? And and that's, I think, a really exciting thing to be a part of uh, because we got some folks here who are very smart, who are very dedicated, and and they're trying to, to do some things that are clearly out of the box because they need to be out of the box because the box has, has created a real mess and so uh, I think that's been a, a real wonderful thing about teaching these people. So sometimes it's the easiest way to describe somebody is just to simply use two um, people as like to say that they're a combination of these people. Um, so, for example, if you if, you know, if you are watching sports or whatever and they're trying to describe a player, they say maybe this basketball player is a combination of Larry Bird and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or something. Right. So when you think about your legacy, and this is kind of a tough question, but when you think about your legacy, um, what two people would you be honored to be compared to um, as you're being oh described? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm terrified to even think that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I oh boy, I I don't think about my legacy for one thing, um, because that's that's something, of course, a person has no control over. And yeah, oh my, I, I mean, I don't think about it in terms of 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 legacy. I think about it in terms of the people who who I aspire to to have learned from in ways that you know carry on the work. And 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 there are, are several of those kinds of people that I that I think I could point to. I you know I think about Wendell for sure as one. I think about my my grandfather, Wilhelm Repke as a as another. I mean I think about, um, you know even my mother-in-law who was a choral conductor and what she was able to do with people. Um, I think about Louis Dupre, a teacher that I had at Yale many years ago, who who made the whole idea of teaching. Uh, just come alive in in unexpected ways. Um, you know, some of these people are folks that you know are quiet and would be almost entirely unknown to a larger audience. Uh, but some of them are going to be more well known. And uh, yeah, so I I don't know. I'm I I'm I'm pretty nervous about the idea <laughs> of of trying to to describe what my legacy might be or ought to be. That that's up for other people to decide. Sure. Well, I will say. Uh, and that's fair, but I will say that, you know, um, the way that you have carried on, uh, Wendell's message has been, been very powerful to, uh, to myself and, and many others, of course, but. Well, thank you. That's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, uh, just a couple more, um, give us a, give us a recommendation. Um, it could be, uh, maybe uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, have much to do even with anything we've talked about. It might even just be fiction, nonfiction, a book, a movie, something that something that has really uh, spoke to you recently. Uh, yeah, so the painting of Vincent Van Gogh has been in my head a fair amount more recently. What I love about his painting is the vibrancy and the life that is in it and how he's trying to draw us into a world that is much more alive than we might take it to be, right? For for a lot of us, the world is basically a dead stage that we do our cool stuff on. And, and I think what we need are people who can help us see the world as much more interesting, much more alive, and much more penetrating into our own experience, 
our own bodies. So his work has been something that I've I've really benefited from more recently. Um, a, a writer that has been really helpful to me is a Native American woman, Robin Kimmerer, uh, has written this wonderful, wonderful book called Braiding Sweetgrass, oh, which yeah. is all about how we need to learn from our plants as teachers of human beings, which of course is something that on the face of it is rather arresting to say because we've been accustomed to thinking that plants are pretty lowly creatures. But what she does as a trained botanist is, is show us how indigenous traditions help us understand the world in remarkably fresh and important ways if we simply become open to what the land and what plant and animal life can teach us. Uh, so that's been a, a real wonderful uh, companion to have been with for the last you know, two or three years. Um, so th- those are a couple of places that I would point. Yeah, I just heard a, a pastor talking about Van Gogh's Starry Night and the the image that uh, being that the illumination coming from the stars and all these different places, but the church didn't have a light in it. And I thought that was kind of a mm. powerful point being yeah. made. Yeah. Well, well, Norman, I, I just so appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us. I mean, like Steve said, not to uh, not to make you uncomfortable, but you've been so important to us and to so many, and so. It just means a great deal for you to talk to us and make the time and uh, please continue the work that you're doing. It's just so important for the world and it challenges well, people I, I, like me. I appreciate the invitation to do this. Yeah, and the, if we have you back, the one thing I'd say is we need to have uh, you and Stanley Hauerwas do a bricklaying competition. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I don't think I've yeah. ever heard him talk without him mentioning the fact that he used to be a bricklayer. Who who yeah, can who we've can curse about more? That a fair amount over the years, it's, right? It's, so it's an important thing. <laughs> yeah, Joseph makes a good point. You you definitely curse less than he would during this interview, though. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll be up there at some point in in the next few months to to do an interview with Ellen Davis. And so, uh, if we're up that way, I'd love to be able to meet you. Yeah, that would be great. All right. All right. Thanks, thanks so, much. so much. Have a good day. You All too. right. You thanks. too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, do you think? I think so.